Thank you so much. I am Bill Anderson, Life Change Camp. Most of you know my wife and I. We're thrilled to be with you again this morning. A number of years ago, after their product had been on grocery store shelves for many years, the Cornflakes Company ran a new marketing ad. And the slogan for that marketing ad was simply this, cornflakes, taste them again for the first time. The goal of the ad was hopefully to encourage people to reignite their appreciation of and desire for this old, well-known breakfast cereal. This morning, I'm going to encourage you, invite you just to sit back and relax and hear the story of Jesus again for the first time. But let's pray. Father, I ask you, Lord, that you would open our hearts today to receive and hear anew and afresh this old, old story that is ever new. In Jesus' name, amen. It seemed neither the time nor the place for a Messiah to be born whose message was a message of love. When Jesus was born back in 5 BC, Palestine was a troublesome province in the backwash of the Roman Empire. Worn down by poverty, internal strife, cruelly high taxes, and a tyrannical leader named Herod. King of the Jews, but a puppet of the Romans. General discontent simmered in the land. Zealots were up in the hills crying, revolution? Greek philosophy was infecting the religious life and, and Greek and Roman influences were pulling the young people away from the faith of their fathers. The Jewish faith itself was being torn by bitter rivalry among various sects within it. There were the Pharisees on the one hand who were striving to purify the faith by a relentless obedience to hundreds of laws. There were the Sadducees who were the liberal sect made up mostly of, of high priests and the wealthy. And then there were the Essenes, people we've heard of when we talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls. But they had chosen to separate themselves from society and move off up into the hills to somehow attain a higher spirituality. And then there were those Samaritans. Those half-breeds that were hated by most Jews, avoided by them, and whom the Pharisees called ceremonially unclean. The devout Jews were still, however, expecting a Messiah to come as they had read about and had been foretold by their prophets for years. They had expected someone to arrive on the scene who was a godlike warrior who would kick the Romans out into the sea. 
they certainly didn't expect a Messiah like Jesus. One who would speak equally and as easily with Pharisees and Samaritans. One who would spend time as easily with the rich and the poor. And they certainly did not expect some carpenter's son turned teacher. Most people in Palestine knew nothing about the birth of Jesus. Oh, the family did, obviously. A few wise men did from the Far East who came following a star led to this infant child. A handful of shepherds knew they were out in the field that night. We know the story, guarding their sheep when suddenly the heavens opened and, and the burst of angels came down upon them singing glory to God and, and peace to men on earth and telling them that they could go to Bethlehem and, and would find a child laying in a manger, which they did. And then they returned telling everyone what they had seen. But then tragedy struck. Herod, who had been informed by the wise men that they were there to find this new baby born king of the Jews, freaked out. Herod was one who was jealous for his throne. And he was a man who would stop at nothing. He had executed his own wife. He had executed his own, his three sons and a number of in-laws just to preserve his place on the throne. And now this message of a new king, he ordered his soldiers to Bethlehem to slaughter every male child under the age of two. Jesus escaped only by an angel informing Joseph to take his family and leave the country. Now, the gospel record, Mark and John, don't tell us anything about the miraculous birth of Jesus. Matthew and Luke do, but they differ on some details. But they agree on this point, that Jesus was born of a virgin, Mary, conceived in her by the Holy Ghost. Imagine what must have gone through the mind of that young Jewish girl. Engaged to be married, but now was informed that she was carrying a child who would be called the son of the, of the living God. Joseph also was naturally disturbed to find out that his wife-to-be was pregnant. And being a just and kind man, he, he decided just to put her aside quietly and without to embarrass her any more than necessary. But an angel came to him and said not to be afraid to take Mary as his wife. For the child within her was of the Holy Spirit. And all this came about just as it was foretold by the prophets. Mary and Joseph were a poor couple. Living in a poor country. Living in the little city of Nazareth, maybe in a little house amongst a a cluster of other little clay houses up on the hillside away from the main town near what was known as the Roman road, a Roman military highway. Living in a small house, maybe two rooms, nine by twelve, one room dedicated to eating and sleeping and living and storage, the other room dedicated to Joseph's carpentry 
shop. Now, we're not told very much in the scripture about Jesus' boyhood other than the experience that he was 12 when he was taken into the temple. All the gospels really tell us is that Jesus grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now, we do know that Mary and Joseph raised him to be a good Jew. As an infant, he was circumcised. He was then presented at the temple as the law required. And then at age 12, he was brought to the temple at Passover time for the ritual of assuming Jewish manhood, his bar mitzvah. But even at that early age, Jesus' focus on his mission on earth was greater than his focus on consideration for his parents. The Bible records for us that when Passover was over, Mary and Joseph and the rest of their party began to travel back home. They had traveled a day's worth when suddenly they realized Jesus wasn't with them. And they went back to the city of Jerusalem and hunted for three days and finally discovered him, found him in the temple talking with the Jewish and rabbis and religious leaders who were astounded by his understanding. And by his questions that he was asking. And when Mary told him how worried they were, how they had sought him, Jesus said, why is it that you were looking for me? Didn't you know that I must be about my father's business? Now, in spite of the small details, the few details we're told of Jesus' boyhood, it's highly possible and more than likely probable that Jesus' boyhood centered on Joseph's carpentry shop, the farming activities of his family and his neighbors, and the local synagogue. Now, a carpenter in those days was not a house builder. He was a craftsman, a wooden craftsman who would make wooden tools, shovels, plows, yokes. He would make doors and window frames, household furniture. But carpentry then was also heavy manual labor. There was cutting trees, transporting logs, rip sawing and, and creating lumber. And I can't help but imagine that Jesus, as he worked with his father in these tasks, developed a powerful physique, quite unlike some of the limp-wristed, paddy-wasted pictures we see of Jesus these days. While a youth, he probably spent time taking care of his family's sheep and those of the neighbors. He probably was involved in picking the grapes and olive harvests, and all the while Joseph being paid in kind for Jesus' work. Now, 12 years before Jesus was born, back in Jerusalem, Herod had begun to rebuild the ancient temple. And all those gleaming marble walls and the shining gold were, the, were the, just the thrill and the pride of all Israel. Now, there was only one temple, but every town had its synagogue. And Jesus attended the synagogue in Nazareth every day, every Sabbath for his religious education. Orthodox Jews believed that their first parents had fallen from holiness and sinned 
And as a result, now we're under the punishment and the condemnation of God. But God had promised to send the Redeemer to redeem them from sin. And there in Nazareth, the members of that synagogue were attending services every Sabbath day with the Christ, the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Son of God, and they didn't even know it. In fact, the Bible records for us that the very first time Jesus stood up to speak in that synagogue, his words so enraged the audience that they took him and attempted to drag him out and throw him off a cliff. But Jesus walked right through them and escaped. The real starting point of Jesus' ministry happened when he was about 30 years old. Old John the Baptist, that rough and tumble character, living out there in the desert, wearing camel's hair, eating locusts and wild honey, went about preaching a baptism for the repentance and forgiveness of sin. But he also spoke about a Messiah, someone who was going to come after him whose sandals he was not even worthy to bend down and untie. And Jesus came to John one day at about 30 years of age when John was baptizing at the River Jordan, asked to be baptized. And upon being baptized, the Bible records how the heaven opened and a voice from heaven came down and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, Jesus was no political revolutionary leader. He was not the kind of Messiah who would lead the, Jew, the Jews into their new days of glory. Although, seriously enough, his words, taken to heart, have revolutionary implications. He was human, so he understood hunger and sorrow, and he challenged the Essenes with, to, to, who taught to hate the opposition. He challenged that by commanding his followers to love your enemies and do good to those that hate you. He also said they should show love to their neighbors, as much to their neighbors as to themselves. And one attorney, one lawyer came to him one day and challenged him saying, well, who is my neighbor? At which point Jesus broke into the well-known story of the good Samaritan in which the Samaritan, this hated individual, was the hero. And since the Jews would have nothing to do with Samaritans, the lawyer had his answer. All men, even Samaritans, are your neighbor. After his first year of ministry or so, Jesus began the process of gathering around him 12 apostles, 12 followers to be his closest com comrades. Most of them were gathered from backgrounds very similar to that of Jesus, from the fishing villages of Galilee, from the farming areas around the sea. But he also pulled in Matthew from the tax booths of the Romans, and he pulled in Simeon from the hills of revolution, a zealot, and for Jesus now to take these group of 10 and get them to accept 
these two extremists, Simon the Zealot, Matthew the Bureaucrat, and to meld them together into one unified group took considerable genius on the part of Jesus. Now, some of the people who followed Jesus and his disciples were wealthy, but most were very poor because Jesus knew that the wealthy had difficulty with things like lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth. Jesus knew that the wealthy had more focus on their own self-interest than the probability of sacrificing everything for the cause. In fact, Jesus said that it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. But I'm so glad he also added, but with God, all things are possible. And in the course of his teaching, he made certain that none of us were exempted from our personal responsibility. Jesus' reputation grew as a great teacher. And it's no wonder he taught with stories, with parables that brought his teaching to life. The, the farms and the fields of his childhood, of his growing up years, burst upon the pages of the stories that he shared and taught. He taught that all men were sinners, that all men break God's law, but that God in his love forgives repentant sinners. Still, thankfully, he was no legalist. In fact, he angered the Pharisees often by rebuking them for the lovelessness of their doctrine. They brought to him one day a woman caught in adultery. They dragged her in, they cast her down at his feet and pointed out to him that the law said such a one should be stoned. When Jesus didn't respond, they persisted with the question. Finally, Jesus gets up from his doodling in the sand and says, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if Jesus, in getting up from the ground, had not picked up a stone and held it out to them. Cast the first stone. The Bible says that one by one they departed the scene stricken by their own conscience. In the Sermon on the Mount and at other times of his teaching, Jesus made it clear to people the nature and character of God and what it was like to really serve one another in love. And the people just flocked to hear him. And the rabbis grew more and more jealous of his popularity. Part of the reason for his growing popularity and reputation was the miracles that he was performing. Oh, he didn't do this just to show off. 
He did it to reinforce his teaching and to apply works to his words. Once when he was at a wedding, the embarrassed host ran out of wine, and so he made more. At another time, faced with a hungry multitude, you know the story, he took the five loaves and two small fish and made them into enough food to feed everybody. He healed the sick. He made the blind to see. He caused the crippled to walk. And one day when a friend died, he raised them back to life. Though not before weeping and grieving with the family. Even little children felt the love that came from Jesus. And when his disciples tried to run interference for him and shoo them away, Jesus said, no, 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 no. Let them come. Because of such is the kingdom of God. The religious leaders, powerful laymen, became more and more frustrated with his influence and his large followings. And they often debated him, trying to catch him in his words so they could take some words and use them against him. One Pharisee once asked him if it was lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. Jesus simply replied with the phrase, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. Some felt that he was guilty of encouraging laziness in religious discipline. One day as he and his disciples happened to be the Sabbath, walking through the grain field, plucking some heads of grain to eat, the Pharisees said, why do your followers do what is not lawful to do? You see, picking grain was work, and you don't work on the Sabbath. Jesus responded, By saying the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. But Jesus also said, Do not think that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Still, his enemies grew in number and in bitterness. It angered them beyond thought when he drove the notorious merchants out of the temple of all things, saying, my house should be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. But what seemed the most outrageous of all to these religious leaders were the claims that he made about himself. I am the living bread which came down from heaven, he said. I am the vine, you are the branches. Without me, you can do nothing. He gave his disciples power to perform miracles. He said he could forgive sins, not just sins done to him, but all sins. He claimed the power of final judgment. He claimed and implied that he had always existed. In short, he talked as if he were God. He called himself the Son of Man. And the Son of God, saying, I 
and the Father are one. Jesus' disciples slowly grew to understand the meaning of his claims. Oh, they walked with him. They talked with him. They heard him teach. They saw his miracles. They spent months with him. And at one point, Jesus was sitting with them and asked them point blank, and who do you say that I am? Peter, the first to speak, jumps up and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, and you are Peter. And upon this rock, this testimony, I will build my church. Peter, we soon find out soon thereafter, was not always as bold as his understanding seemed to suggest. But he was the first to begin to understand the significance of these claims by Jesus. Claims that were to become the foundation of a new faith. Traditional Judaism saw God as being totally separate from the universe. One who had made it all, but was totally separate and far away. To make the kind of claims that Jesus was making was either ridiculous, comic, blasphemous, or true. Finally, these religious leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees, could take Jesus' unsettling influence no longer. And as Jesus' disciples prepared to celebrate the Passover, old Judas, maybe disappointed because Jesus had not become the Roman kicking leader he had hoped to have, decided to concoct a plan with Jesus' enemies and betray him to them for a paltry sum of 30 pieces of silver. On Passover evening, Jesus and his disciples were gathered for what was going to become their last meal together. And since there was no servant in the room to attend them and to wash their feet, and of course the disciples didn't offer to do it themselves, Jesus gets up lays aside his outer cloak, picks up a basin and a towel, and proceeds to wash the feet of each one of his disciples. Can you imagine what must have gone through their mind as Jesus knelt down, untied their dirty old shoes, and then lifted their dusty, dirty, smelly feet and washed them with his hands? After Jesus had made the cycle around that room, he stood up and said, you call me Master and Lord. And you're right, because that's who I am. But if I, your Master and Lord, am willing to wash your feet, you ought also to do so for one another. And at another time, he had reminded them that whoever would be great among you must, first of all, be your servant. Well, at that table that night, Jesus took bread and broke it, said, this is my body, eat it. He took the cup, passed it about, and he said, drink, this is, drink all of it. This is my blood in a new covenant, 
a new arrangement, a new testament between me and you and God. That night he also spoke about the future. He talked about going away to prepare a place for all who would believe in him. He talked about sending his Holy Spirit to come and live within them. And he said that just as God had sent him into the world with a message, now he was sending them into the world with that message as well. Afterwards, Jesus and his disciples went to the garden to pray. And Jesus sets his disciples down and tells them to wait and watch and pray with them, and they immediately fell asleep. Jesus entered deeply into the garden to pray, and there he prayed to his Father God, asking that if it were possible to be spared the death that he knew awaited him, could that happen? But he ended that prayer by saying, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Say that with me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. When Jesus returned to his disciples, find them still sleeping, a mob came out of the city with clubs, torches, and swords to arrest him. The mob led by the traitorous Judas who identified him with a kiss. So Jesus was tried first by the high priest Caiaphas, and then by Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. Now, for the high priest, the charges against Jesus were religious. The charge of blasphemy, the charge of claiming to share the throne of God. The high priest found him guilty, the people demanded his death, but the high priest had no authority to impose the death sentence. So he passed him off to Pilate. Now, to Pilate... The charges were political. The reports that Jesus had claimed to be a king. And through the trial, Jesus didn't say much of anything. Pilate was no personal enemy of Jesus. And he tried three times to free himself of the responsibility of passing this death sentence. He tried, first of all, to pass the trial off to Herod. Herod, just pass it back. He tried proposing flogging Jesus and then just releasing him, but the crowd demanded death. Finally, Pilate offered to release Jesus as an act of clemency, which was customary at the time of Passover. But the crowd demanded that Pilate instead release Barabbas, Barabbas, a known murderer who was in prison, and crucify Jesus. Finally, Pilate gave in. But he took a basin of water and he washed his hands in their presence and said, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. So Jesus was mocked, scourged, crucified, and laid in a borrowed tomb. Just three days later, Jesus' tomb, a heavily guarded, sealed rock crypt, was empty. And on the meaning of the empty tomb and the appearances afterwards of the resurrected Christ, the Christian church has built its hope, its courage, its foundation, its joy, and its future, and its faith. For the risen Christ is, as Paul writes, the foundation stone of Christianity. 
The crucifixion didn't do it. The written Bible didn't do it. All of Jesus' miracles lumped together didn't do it. But the resurrected Christ established for us a foundation stone upon which our faith stands and will always stand unbreakable, unshakable for all of eternity. Praise God. Now, many theories have been proposed as to how to explain away this empty tomb. Perhaps Jesus didn't really die and he just revived again in the coolness of the sepulcher. Uh, Perhaps those who claim to have seen him after the resurrection were victims of mass hysteria. Maybe the disciples had enough money to, to bribe the guards and to steal his body and make up the whole story. Doesn't take much thought and study to debunk every one of these theories. Scholars Bible scholars and secular scholars don't question that Jesus was dead on the cross. The Romans were good at death. And crucifixion was their favorite way. In fact, the Bible records for us how the soldiers went back to that crucifixion hill and they broke the legs of the men crucified with Jesus. But they didn't touch Jesus because he was already dead. And one might ask whether these disciples, if they had enough money to bribe the guards and make off with the body, could they have founded the church on such such a big lie? I don't think so. If the disciples had worked such a shabby swindle, could that little band so dispirited and splintered by the events of the crucifixion become the heroic spiritual leaders of the early church as described in Acts and the epistles and other writings? When Jesus died, the disciples' world was shattered. Perhaps they had expected the Son of God to save himself, come down off that cross, but when he didn't, they gave up hope were a sad, demoralized group And during the trial, in fact, Peter himself denied three times, even knowing the guy. But then came the empty tomb. With it came bewilderment and and questions of all sorts. Jesus brought the answer himself when he appeared in the midst of them as, as they gathered as a group and said, peace be unto you. Now, this was no ghost. Jesus said, touch me and feel me, for a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones like you see I have. There was surprise, wonder, and then overwhelming joy. During his remaining days on earth, Jesus prepared his disciples to found the church. Matthew tells us that in a meeting with them on a mountain in Galilee, Jesus sent them out to carry the message and said, I am going to be with you always, even to the end of the age. When Jesus ascended to his place with God, man now knew God's master plan for the human race, a plan of unending love. God was no longer a faraway mystery. He had revealed his nature and his character in Jesus, the God-man. Because Jesus was both God and man, he joined man, us, to the timeless reality of an eternal God. Because he was God, he was able to overcome sin and death once and for all. And because he was man, we too 
can share in his victory. Because he came down to us and rose again. We can rise also redeemed from sin and go to him. I'm going to ask all of you to stand. I'm going to ask the elders to come down here to the front. And prayer team to come to the front. And for a few moments, I want you to listen very clearly to what I'm going to say. This same Jesus is still calling men and women, boys and girls, to himself today. If you are hearing his voice or feeling the tug of his hand, today is your day, right here at this altar. Respond to him in obedience today. This same Jesus is still changing lives by his miraculous power in response to desperate prayers of faith. He is still healing bodies. He is still removing disease. He is still restoring broken relationships, sons to fathers, daughters to mothers, children to parents, husbands to wives. He's still doing this today. He is still providing financial miracles for those who call out to him in a desperate prayer of faith. He is still giving wisdom, both natural and supernatural, to his church, to his world. He is still making his plans and purposes known through his word, through his prophets and his preachers. Will you come today if there's a need in your life, a desperate need in any of these areas, and you want to see a miracle-working God have an impact on that, come down here to the front and pray with some of these who are here. Let's bow our heads and pray. As we're praying, if there's any in this room, you've been struck by the old, old story of Jesus. And the claims of who he is and what he did and what he came to do in you. This is your time to come and pray, make commitments, make a decision regarding Jesus like you've never done before. But this is the day. This is the time. This is the place. But Lord, I just give you thanks that your story is not just history. It's ongoing. And we are called to write the next chapters and to be players in the next chapters as you move forward with your plan in this world. May we be found faithful in the face of this same Jesus. Amen.